I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel. This is a podcast episode brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Parshat Vaigra opens with God assuring Moshe that he will be present and help the people despite the current overload of their slave responsibilities. Moshe is sent to the people to assure them, but he isn't successful. His initial faltering confidence is not strengthened by these initial failures. This is followed by a genealogical list which details the descendants of Yaakov, but which really focuses on the Levite family tree, serving as substantiation of Moshe and Aaron's leadership positions. While the people remain currently unconvinced, the reader is informed that leadership success will eventually arise from this family. Then we meet the plague's opening act. Aaron performs a sign for Paro when he turns his staff into a snake. While the magicians can perform the same wonder, Aaron's staff then eats theirs, displaying his superior powers. But even this impressive feat does not move Paro, and God moves forward with the plague program. This week's parasha includes the first seven plagues, Dam, Tzvardea, Kinim, Arov, Dever, Shechin, and Barad. Today, I want to welcome back Rabbinit Dr. Adina Sternberg, uh, who has participated in several of Matan's programs, including the Advanced Talmud Program, the Halacha Program, and lately, the Kidvuni Writing Fellowship. We hope her book about the holidays will be coming out in the coming year. She's also part of Matan's writing team, which includes a Halacha blog and a weekly Dvar Torah. She is also a lecturer at Barilan's Midrasha and the head of the Torah Shabal Ped Department at Efrata College. Adina, it is a pleasure to have you back here on the podcast. Hi, I'm so happy to be back. It's so nice to talk to you again, and I'm hoping that a lot of people will be listening. Yes. So, you know, what's interesting is that until we plan this episode together, I had not intentionally thought to speak about dun, 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 Professor Nechama Leibovitz. And Adina brought up the idea. And so I guess I wanted to start with that and say that it's funny because when we chose the theme for this for this series about 20th, 19th and 20th century commentators, of course, by nature, we're mostly talking about men, right? And until Adina brought up the idea to speak about her, I hadn't really thought about trying. I mean, we can't really balance the powers here. It doesn't really work like that in this century, in these centuries that we've chosen. But I think that that's really moving that we, I'm really happy that Adina brought up the idea of Nechama Leibovitz. And so we really wanted to speak a little bit about, about who she was and what was unique about her, about her contribution to, to Ami Israel. So a little, just a little biographical information. And then the Chamelebovitz was born in Latvia in 1905. Uh, she dies in 1997. And she was a passionate educator, Zionist, and scholar. She immigrated to Israel in 1930. Uh, and she taught uh, students in and outside the classroom. And she did also eventually win the prestigious Israel Prize in the field of education in, in 1956. Now, what's interesting is that Nechama Leibovitz never saw herself as a chadshan, meaning she didn't feel that her contribution to the world of Torah was in bringing out new ideas. We'll speak about whether this is true or not. But she didn't view herself as that. She insisted also at the end of her life on her matseva, it just says teacher, uh, just says moral. And uh, but what's interesting is sort of how how things developed for her. She was also from a prominent rabbinic family, uh, and uh, some also are familiar with her brother, Professor Yishai Leibovitz. 
And what's interesting is that what she's often most known for are her Gilionot or her Parsha study sheets. And eventually those become the Parsha books that we have from, from her. Uh, in 1942, some of her students decided that they wanted to continue studying her material even when the school year had ended. And so in order to accept their request and try and, and figure out a way to make it happen, she began mailing them these worksheets. Uh, and a lot of them contained commentaries that were at that point still unavailable for different reasons. Maybe they were in a language that were inaccessible to her students, but were accessible to her or just weren't commonly circulated commentaries. Uh, and then she would challenge them with questions uh, on those commentators. And she would check every every page that was given to her by her students. And this is what eventually became known as the Gilionot, that word spread and friends and neighbors and eventually people all over Israel and beyond eventually became students of hers through these Gilionot, which she continued to mark by hand, uh, even when, I mean, the number was astronomical of how much she would be marking each week. She sort of functioned as a one-woman open university correspondence course for over 30 years without ever receiving any any payment for that. That was part of her sort of own, own mifal, her own project. In terms of her approach or her study, she really was very focused on commentators and she was a close colleague, if this means anything to our listeners, of, uh, of Professor Mayer Weiss. And, and in that regard, she also really was aided by what we call new criticism or sort of the earlier trends of literary approaches to Tanakh. And this was a helpful sort of discipline for many, many religious uh, students and teachers of Tanakh because it sort of enabled uh, them to use different tools that were in the academy, but without using documentary hypothesis, without having to get into questions of sort of to archaeologically dig the uh, the Torah sources to figure out, you know, or even have to believe or deal with the questions of, of authorship. And she really drew from also a lot of the sort of Western European voices that were that were very impactful on our biblical understandings of Buber and Rosenzweig and Strauss and Umberto Casuto and Beno Yaakov. And, uh, and she really appreciated the literary method because, and as I, you know, we still teach us today, a lot of the midrashic methods are also very much noticing repeated words and different phraseology and structures that are related. And so she really felt that the literary approach was something that was sort of an extension of, of a lot of Chazal's commentary on the Torah. And she herself does a number of significant literary analyses that people will credit to her. And even though she didn't claim to be to be a, a chadshan. I also just want to say if anyone wants to read more about her, there are so many books out there that have been written, uh, certainly in English. And also there's a wonderful biography in Hebrew that's written by Chayuta Deutsch. And the truth is, is that I've really appreciated there's a wonderful Hebrew book for children uh, that we've read in our home. It's this series of Gedolei Yisrael that's I mean, there's all different books for all different Rabbanim, and there's also a book on the Chamalevitz, which are wonderful biographical stories that are written in a way. I mean, we read one at each meal on Shabbat. And, and that's also a lovely book that has also some very powerful stories. And there's other biographies also written about hers in English, of course, other than her actual books of, of Torah learning. I'll just sort of end this sort of biographical introduction with, uh, with one other poignant story, which is that famously Necham who was married to her uncle, uh, never had children. And she had confided that she would have really given up all of her career success uh, to have children. At her funeral in 1997, her nephew announced that all those who feel, as I do, like a son to Nechama, 
uh, may join in the Kaddish with me. And suddenly, thousands of people said together, um, and it's really just a testament to how much her teaching also touched everybody's hearts. And we'll talk a little bit about that today, about how much she felt like she, her, what her role was in terms of how she commented on, on the Torah. So with that very brief introduction, uh, Adina, I'd love for you to take us into, I don't know why you wanted to speak today about Nachama Leibovitz and, and sort of get closer to the Parsha. First of all, it's very interesting that your first thought of Nechama wasn't as a commentator. Because I think a lot of us think of Nechama more of as a collector and someone who brings to us a different perushim. In a sense, I see Nechama as a certain modern day Rashi, because what Rashi did for us in in many senses is he didn't only um, make the Torah accessible to us, he also picked and chose which Midrashim we're all going to know. Like Rashi, in a sense, I don't even know if he, he saw himself too much of as a commentator. He just says, you know what, I'm bringing you some Midrashim that, are, that, that fit with the Pshat. Uh, and obviously he also had many uh, Pshat and many uh, comments on how to understand the text. But, but one of the things is that he made things accessible. And I think that uh, Nechama Leibovitch also made a lot of things accessible. As you said, she brought us perushim that we never would have gotten into. And really, the world of Torah is so wide and so broad. And you know, sometimes I look at my, at my library and I say, I'll never get through all of this. And my library isn't that big. I mean, it's big maybe compared to other people, but it isn't that big. You go into the national library, you go into any library, and, and there's something there that makes <laughs> makes you weak at heart. It's like, I'm never going to get through all of this. And what Nechama Leibovitch did is she picked out those important perushim that she thought everybody needed to know, or at least she thought her students needed to know. And, and she made it accessible to get to a lot of perushim that we wouldn't have gotten to. She sifted through all the things that maybe weren't as interesting. And and she made us a new collection, like a new textbook of what are the perushim people need to know. But but she didn't only do that. She also analyzed them. She also tried to check if they really work with the text. She didn't just say, okay, look, Sefer Agada, you need to know these vidrashim. You need to know these perushim. She also said, but look, do they fit the text? What are they telling us about the text? And through that... She also explains the text to us. She also became a commentator. Like she, in a sense, maybe she sees herself as a mediator, as a teacher. She brought to us what she found in the books that were interesting to her. And she tried to get out of people what they think about the text. But she also gave us a lot of her own. She, the, the choice, which perushim you're going to bring to people, that's also commentary. That's also saying what you think the text is all about. And when she asks us questions, she's telling us what to pay attention to and what to notice and which parts of the text need to be analyzed and how to analyze it, what kind of questions to ask. And, and she really taught people how to look at, at the text. And not only that, but she also, again, she, she compiled for us a textbook of Perushim that other people wouldn't know. And when I think to myself, you know, what do I remember? There was a time in my life where I just went through all of her books. Like every week I read all of the Iyunim on that week. Um, it was a long time ago. So when I ask myself, so what do I remember from this? 
sometimes there are certain evenings that I remember and I'll share with you today. I think also a lot of the things that I remember are things that I learned in high school are things that my teachers chose to bring to us because that's how they knew how to learn. That's where they got the most important information of what's good for Jewish kids to learn, what commentators are important. So if we all know a certain amount of Midrashei Chazal because we've read Rashi, so now we all know a certain amount of commentators because we've read Nechama because she's the one who brought them to us. Right. I think that's, I'll just interject for one moment, which is that a lot of people teach in this kind of way, meaning people sort of take a lot of things, they collate them together and how they craft them into one, you know, shiur or whatever, one article is, is itself, right? There's a symphony to that, that that's, there's a choice that goes, that goes along with that. I think that Sometimes, of course, just because she was a very humble person, she underestimated how much she she added in between, right, in between the, the her bringing those commentators. And I think what's also really important is that for so many years, the text itself was replaced by commentary and that people lost a sense of what was actually written in Tanakh because they were so focused on the commentators. But that isn't true to the commentators themselves. You know, the commentators knew exactly what they were commentating on. And and I still work with students all the time and say, every time we learn a Midrash, every time we learn a comment, I say, what are they trying to figure out in this Pasuk? Why are they saying this? Right? We learned a Midrash yesterday about Kain and Hevel. And I said, what in the Pasuk is making the, the making Chazal go in this direction? And first of all, it's still a really challenging question. And I was never a student of the Chama directly, of course, age-wise, that didn't work out. But I am certain that that is much, very much taken from her because teachers of mine were students of hers. But I always always say to students, you know, don't lose the text for the comment. Uh, and there's also many things that you'll find in the text that are in the comment. And, and also just this... It's interesting, but one more piece I'll add is that I was explaining to them a little bit about Nechama Leibovitz two weeks ago, not connected to what we're, we're doing today. And I said something about the fact that she brought commentaries that that people didn't know about. And and I don't know, I was so surprised. Like sometimes you've taught, you've said something and like for some reason in that group, like it catches them some in some different way. And they were like, wait a second, what does that mean? What does that mean? They're like, she, they, a new commentator who, who no one had to pay attention to before. Maybe no one paid attention because they weren't, they weren't good. They weren't particularly good. So who says that they should be read? And I said, no, commentaries need mazal. Just like, you know, you talk about a Sefer Torah needing mazal to get read among all the Sefer Torah and the Aron. Also a commentary does. And they said a language could be lost or it simply wasn't in circulation, it didn't make it into the Mikrot Gedolo, doesn't mean that it's not an important commentary. You know, Rav Yitzchak Arama, the Akedat Yitzchak, the Beno Yaakov, these are commentaries that nobody knew of them before before Nechama Leibovitz brought them, and many others. And and her footnotes are incredibly, uh, I mean, they're full of scholarship and and, and all these different sources that you're, you're not going to see in any regular, any certainly not a regular religious commentary. So like the rigor that she brings with her is so critical to who, who she was and who she was as a teacher. And, and yeah, also as a scholar, she taught in university. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm thinking about that. You're saying that the commentaries need luck. Their luck was Nechama Leibovitch. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and you know what? I think Nechama Leibovitch did more than that because she was so humble and because she was really a big Tomidah Chachama, she, she could al- allow herself to bring things that other people wouldn't be able to open up, Kasuto, or quoting Shakespeare in the footnotes, 
or Roman uh, scholars or all kinds of things, she could get away with it. I think this fits in with a very important theme that I find in Nechama Leibovitch, and it also characterizes the two Iyunim that I immediately thought about when we discussed this initially, and that is because Nechama saw the Torah as a means of education, meaning uh, we're going to see today as, as to the purpose of, of the enslavement in Egypt and the purpose of the plagues. Both of them, Nechama starts off with, you know, dealing with those commentators that explain in one way. For example, um, the commentators who say that we were enslaved in Egypt as a punishment because the people of Israel were trying to immerse among the, the Egyptians. Uh, she doesn't mention it, but the Ramban also explains that God promised Abraham that we're going to go down to be enslaved for many years. So he sees it as a punishment to Abraham. But, but there are all kinds of commentators who see the enslavement as a punishment. And Hama comes and says, no, but I want to go with the commentators and I want to go with the text with the verses that talk about the enslavement as an educational tool for us to learn how to be better people, for us to remember what it was to be a slave and now be nicer to our slaves and not enslave other people, and for us to remember what it was like to be an immigrant in a land that's not ours, and later on we'll have the compassion and empathy towards other people. So, so Nehama, she brings a certain... Uh, direction. She recognizes also the ideas that she doesn't agree with. She so shows what they're based on, and then she'll go and prove a different, a different way. And the different way that she chooses to prove is the educational one. The one that says the Torah is trying to teach us something. The experiences that God takes us through and then writes down in the Torah is trying to teach us something, trying to make us better people. And the thing is, she says exactly the same thing about the plagues. She says, when you look at the plagues, what is the purpose of the plague? So we know the purpose of the plagues is for God, to, for uh, Pharaoh to send us out of Egypt. But he, we could have done it with less plagues. We didn't need to have so many. So why do we have all these plagues? So she goes to Abba Brunel, who says that you can look throughout the plagues and they keep on saying, We need to know God. We want, so, so, so when she looks at Abba Brunel, she says, okay, but this is sort of philosophical, getting to know God, getting to know about God's uh, um, existence and his power and his um, uh, the way he looks at the land and know what's going on. And that's all great. But she wants us to notice that God says that I want you to know God, both in where I'm punishing the Egyptians, Midat Adin, and also when I take out the people of Israel, Midat Rachamim. And the plagues themselves are intended to show what God is trying to teach a pharaoh. And for example, she, she says Rashi, when he's picking out from the different Midrashim, he won't pick the Midrash that talks about the plagues as a punishment, as a midak neged binda, you know, we, they threw our babies into the, into the, um, 
into the water. So lo and behold, our water becomes full of blood. She doesn't talk about that. She says Rashi chose the one that he's um, plaguing the water, harming the water, hurting the water, because the water was the god of the Egyptians, and they needed to learn that that god is wrong and that that god is not a real god. So Nehama focuses on where the plague brings us to a certain realization and, and changes the way we look at things. And she also emphasizes how in Makat Barad, part of the educational aspect is that the Egyptians learned that God isn't only bad, God isn't only hurting them, God is also giving them the chance to um, save their servants and save their livestock. And they learned that God is not only bad, God is also good. God doesn't only punish, God also rewards. And therefore, she really is focusing on the educational aspects of the Torah. And I get back to what I started with. That why she does, that's why she doesn't have a problem with saying or introducing this idea that the Torah is only um, a stepping stone on the way to where we're supposed to get to. So it's okay that there are certain mitzvot in the Torah that aren't the end game. They aren't where we're supposed to reach. They're, they're a level or a stage on the way to becoming better person, leaving behind all kinds of institutions that aren't really that great. But the Torah recognizes our humanity. The Torah recognizes our weaknesses and works with that to get us to a better place. So I think that for me, that was a very, very important message. Uh, that I got from uh, Nechama Leibovich of looking at the Torah not only as as a textbook and not only as a book of rules together with a book of stories, but as a book of education, like a book that I'm always looking for how it's trying to educate me. And I'm also looking for the educational tools in the Torah. And you think about it, the Torah itself is is not a law book. And it's not a storybook. It's law embedded in narrative. It's the, the story tells us of how we got the law and the story teaches us the law. It's not just a book of laws. And, and you know, when you notice, this is something that, that I've later on gone and explored and, and put a lot of energy into all the connection between law and narrative. And I think that part of it is this understanding that God didn't give us a Torah all at once. God didn't come and say, okay, this is a divine truth, and this is what you need to do. He prepared us for it. He got us ready. He made us slaves in Egypt, and um, he took us out of Egypt, and then he gave us a little bit. He gave us a small portion of the Torah, what we were ready for at the time. And then we went some more, and then we got a little bit more. And then we had some more stories, and we had some more experiences, and then we got another part of the Torah. We didn't get it all at once because we couldn't we couldn't receive it all at once. Now, I find this as a very important message. Also, as parents, as educators, just because something is the truth doesn't mean that everybody can accept that at the time. That God gives us the Torah, Megilot, Megilot, Nitna. The Torah is given in, in, in the laws are given, you know, you, you talked about the, the biblical criticism. Biblical criticism loves this idea that we have separate um, law uh, texts, law codes within the Torah, okay? And then they say, okay, one group had this law code and one group had this law code. But but I think, Nehemiah doesn't talk about this, but I take this 
from what I learned from her, the education that I got from her, from reading her books, is that, is that the Torah works with people. The Torah, even if God knew all, even if Torah kadmala olam, okay, even if everything came before, the way the people of Israel got the Torah was a little bit at a time, was what they could handle at each point in the way. At, it, it's a journey. Learning Torah is a journey because what you can uh, accept and what you can internalize and what you can do at a certain point in your life isn't necessarily what you can at a later point in your life. And it's true not only for people, but also for a people. A nation can't become from a nation of slaves and then become 100% Torah keepers in just a second. You need to go through a process. I want to just go back for a minute to what you said about the educational process, which is that both the process of the plagues and the whole experience of being in Egypt is a process of re-education. It doesn't negate the fact that there may be other layers of a layer of purification, right? Or a layer of punishment uh, that Chazal themselves also speak about. And of course, that's predicted already in Brit Ben Habitarim. But I think that that idea is a very powerful one because it speaks, as you suggested, I think, to the nature of all of Torah, meaning all of Torah is meant to be an element of, ha, has a serious element of education, it's Torah. And so these foundational experiences of ours in Egypt are meant to do that. I also think that Nechama underscores what's the clear shot of the Torah, which is that the 48 times that it says that we have to be kind to slaves and weaker populations because we were slaves, uh, that I think is, as she says so importantly, is at the crux of, of what the Psukim themselves say. We were supposed to have acquired some some sort of midah of kindness of 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 a of an understanding and an empathy because of the experience we went through and in that way she also reminds us that our life experiences are meant to be educational meaning it's not just the torah it's that the experiences that we have in life are meant to pave the way for all that we'll meet we'll meet later on so those are those are really important ideas yeah she actually says that she says she brings a midrash that talks about the purpose of the enslavement that also asks what's the purpose of Galut in general. Meaning, she'll say, the question isn't only about Torah, it's about life itself. It's what we get out of it. Um, I'd like to add something that, if that's okay, um, that what I do find is that she also has an emphasis on education in the social way. Meaning what she emphasized about the Galut was the idea of being better people and being nicer. And I agree. I totally agree. And as you said, I think what the most beautiful thing that I got from Nahama Leibovich is that you can be both textual and, um, and go to the world of ideas. Meaning lots of times you feel like you have to decide, <laughs> you have to choose. Can you be, uh, do you have to go with the text? and like this meticulous reading and paying attention to the words and to the structure. And sometimes that feels kind of boring. Or can you be like kind of, um, it's not a nice word, but I'll say it anyway. Can you be like fluffy and in the higher realms and thinking about all these wonderful ideas? And sometimes you feel like you have to pick. But I think Nechama Leibovich um, set the, the, 
groundwork to be you can be totally grounded in the text and still get to really beautiful ideas and they're not only beautiful they're also real they're also true because you know that they're grounded in the text and as you said she quotes all the psukim that talk about and she says all of them take us to this point of being better people and sympathy and empathy, etc. Um, and but but she also notices that the makot themselves also take us to this idea of noticing God's kindness and being able to care for others. Because when God warns about the plague of the hail, He says, "But you have the ability to save your people. You have the ability to save your livestock." So she wants us also. The kindness. She's looking also for the kindness in the Torah. For me, I, I like that idea. I do think that in certain points, um, I would emphasize also the religious education of the Torah. Meaning, when I read the story of Egypt and I ask myself, why were Bnei Israel enslaved? As you said, obviously, the, um, the, the idea of empathy is true. I mean, it's rooted in the psukim. I'm not going to say it otherwise, but I do think that there are other levels. And one of them is that God reminds us that he took us out of Egypt when he expects us to become his nation. Meaning part of our covenant with God is based on the fact that he took us out of Egypt. He took us out of a place where we were enslaved and we served Pharaoh as our master, and he says, but you know what, that that prepared you to know what it, it means to serve God, meaning we didn't only learn how to be nice to other people, we also learned what it means to be committed, what it means to dedicate your life, what it means to from waking to, to going to sleep, knowing that you're serving a higher entity, and I think that's also part of what the Torah is educating us. Uh, the Torah uh, beautifully doesn't only talk about us being God's servants. It also talks about God being our father. So the Torah is a bit more complex than, than what I'm saying right now. But I do think that part of what the Torah is trying to teach us or educate us is how to worship God. And the, the story of being enslaved in Egypt taught us how to serve God, to, to be kili b'nei Israel avadim. We're not going to be now servants to Pharaoh, but we are going to serve God. And I think also throughout the plagues, uh, we learn not only about God's power and not only about people's power to um, affect their lives and to take from God's warning uh, to make their lives better, which I think is part of what the, the idea of, the, um, of God's warning before the plague of the hell saying you have responsibility and you're able, you you have the knowledge and you have the ability to affect the outcome. But I think also throughout the plagues, we learn a lot about our religion. We learn a lot about what it means to worship God because we see that when Pharaoh and Moshe are in a negotiation about who exactly is going to sacrifice to God, who is going to go out for three days walk in the desert to worship God, Pharaoh keeps on saying, well, you know what? You don't have to go out of Egypt. You can do it here. You know, we all grew up on the song. Hashem is here. Hashem is there. Hashem is truly everywhere. So maybe he's also in Egypt. You can worship him in Egypt. And Moshe says, no, we're going to worship God where he tells us to worship. 
And then Pharaoh says, okay, we'll go only the men, right? Religion is a, is a men's thing, right? And Moshe says, no, religion is who God wants to serve him at this point in time. It's true, Aliyah Regal is going to be men, but Hakel is going to be men and women and children. God tells us who worships him and at which point in time. And then Pharaoh says, you know what? But you can leave here your livestock. And Moshe says, God is going to choose how we're going to worship him. Now, this kind of brings me back to Avram Avinu, who's told to go to the place where God chose him with a person that God told him to. And in the end, God will choose the sacrifice. This is a very fundamental part of our religion is understanding that we don't make up our religion. We, we uh, accommodate to what God wants. We give him uh, what he requests of us and not how we decide uh, to worship God. Again, this isn't something that Nechama says, but it is something that I learned from her, to look for the messages, to look for the ideas that the text is trying to push us to, the text is trying to bring us to all these realizations. Um, so, so what I like about Nechama is not only that she taught us that you can be connected to the text and also uh, be truly connected to the world of ideas and uh, where we're going from the text, but she also encouraged people to continue thinking. She was an educator in the fact that she said, you know what, I opened up for you the door, but you can go in and you can continue looking for the messages and you can continue as long as you're rooted in the text. Go for it. So it's interesting. As you're describing her, Shita, I'm feeling moved because I also realized that like this is how I teach and I, I needed to be more grateful to uh, Nechama Leibovitz uh, for, for this kind of approach. And, you know, I think of a lot of people as my like more ruchani or mora ruchanit. Like I didn't know them, but they're, you know, they're there in in setting precedent and, and helping us find our way as teachers also today. And I, I also think that it's important just to mention that just like she didn't feel like she was, you know, the big innovator and she just thought she was, you know, creating an anthology of sorts of, of, of commentaries, like any other good, quiet revolutionary, you know, and the Chambalevovitz was ended up, while she wasn't an open supporter of different sort of feminist movements that were during her time, she serves still today, I say this a little bit sadly, as one of the main, if only, right, female Torah figures, certainly from, from the last century. And and she was the the demut, she was the chosen figure in the religious school system two years ago that, you know, every year they choose a they choose a some sort of religious figure and they learn about them and they do projects about them throughout the year. And she she was chosen, uh, I think it was two or three years ago. And she still today remains the example for many of that big, you know, Torah luminary who is going to teach Torah to many, including men. Meaning, honestly, I know more men who have told me that they were students of Nechama than women. I don't, not saying that reflects the numbers. Maybe it's just those who I've spoken to. But that in itself is extremely powerful and still looms really large in in terms of her legacy that she left in, in the world. And she remains a real dugma yeshit, a real, uh, you know, someone that we that we will look to emulate uh, as the years continue. And I and I hope for for all of Am Yisrael that we have other women who join that 
you know, that, that caliber of Torah scholarship, but we are indebted to, to Nechama Leibovitz for, for creating that model for us. I agree. Some would say that, that it helps that she didn't have kids and she could, you know, dedicate all her life to learning Torah. Uh, but I'm hoping that nowadays women can be both, can learn Torah and still be uh, dedicated also to their families. And um, I think also one of the things is that you said, we don't always think of her as the one who affected the way we learn or the way we think, but she affected a generation. So even if we didn't learn from her directly, we only read her books, but, but her students are like that. Um, I'll give a word, a sentence that, you know, I always think of myself as the one who thought about it, you know, but but it's something that I use greatly when I teach. Usually when I teach Chazal, but also when I teach Tanakh and Parshanut, I, I always think of a, a sentence said in the Pirkei Avot by Biakavya bin Mahal El. Da me'ayin bata ule'anata olech. So when I learn, I say, okay, I have here a commentary, I have here a midrash, I have here um, a saying, and I want to know where in the text did this come from? What, what is this, where does this stem from? What are they trying to say? Is it in this text? Maybe they got it from a different text, but they're uh, reading it into this text, the next thing is, what are we doing with this? Where is this taking us? What is the idea that it's trying to teach us? Sometimes, sometimes, just like Nechama, I'll also ask, like, what is the, what is the historical context? For example, she, when she talks about our parasha and she talks about the punishment to the Jews who immersed themselves in the Egyptian culture, she brought in a tzizmi voloshin, and that was something that really bothered him about the Jews in his time. So she'll mention it. She'll give a historical context also to the, um, to the commentators, but it won't take away from where we're coming from and where we're trying to get to. It won't take away from the textual base or from the ideas that we're trying to embrace. And I think that that's something that I don't always think of, as you said, that it has to do with her, but it has to do with teaching in the Bethlehem Midrash that we're affected by her. And that's something very important. As you said, we're all her children, even if we're not her children. Yeah. Adina, thank you so much for this conversation. Really appreciate having the chance to talk to you also about these parshiot and about the figure of Nechama Leibovitz. Thank you, too. Thanks for listening to this week's episode from Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. If you would like to sponsor an episode, please contact the Matan office or email me at podcast.matan.org.il. Please do us and all women's Torah learning a favor and share this episode with all of your friends and family. 